0: Hey podcast listeners, we have a special event running on our Goodreads group this month, a Q&A with Shakita Smith, the creator of a brand new series, Raven Choi, available on Comixology Submit. She'll be answering questions for the entire month of April, so please stop by, say hello, and ask a question. Now on to the show. This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. With me this week, two amazing human beings, Paul Jasley. Hello. And Nick White. Hey. Thank you both for joining me this week. I am super excited to talk to you about comic books. As always, I mean, it's always a great time talking about comic books. <laughs> so let's just get into it. <laughs> what have you been reading? I mean, today's WrestleMania. I know Paul's like super yes. jazzed about that. Yes. So... Paul, let's start with you. What have you been reading? What are you excited about? What's up with Wrestlemania? Could you just go into that? I know that's not the whole episode. I'll break down the whole
1: card for you, tell you (laughs) what matches I'm excited for. Um, Well, you know, uh, speaking of that, I was preparing for Wrestlemania this this week uh, by reading WWE Wrestlemania Special by Boom Comics. Um, Oh, man. So Boom has been doing these WWE comics. I've actually really been enjoying the monthly series. But somehow I had no idea that this was coming out, that they're doing an oversized WrestleMania special. So it was kind of a nice surprise in my pull box this week. Um, it's basically, nice. um, you know, it's like an annual kind of thing, obviously. So you have a bunch of different creative teams retelling the stories of infamous WrestleMania matches. You have Bret Hart, I'm sorry, um, Shawn Michaels versus Razor Ramon from WrestleMania 10, that legendary match. It's a story that's... We all I mean, remember. You, you all remember that one, the <laughs> famous ladder match, right? <laughs> Well, that's funny because it's written by Box Brown, but it's drawn by somebody else, which is kind of an interesting change of pace. Really, Box Brown? Um, Wow! Wow! Yeah. (laughs) And then you have um, Triple H versus Chris Jericho from WrestleMania 18, and of course the Daniel Bryan match from WrestleMania 30, my favorite WrestleMania of all time. So it was a fun, (laughs) it was a fun little issue to get me hyped up for the big show tonight. Um, Oh yeah. (laughs) I also read "Terror Assaulter: One Man War on Terror" by Benjamin Mara which is a original graphic novel that came out about 2 years ago and i remember seeing a lot of the comic book creators i follow on social media tweeting about it and showing images from it so it's a book i was aware of but hadn't read until recently i just saw it on the shelf at the shop and grabbed it it's sort of like a over the top parody of like action movies so you have mm-hmm. This character who is given a license to kill by the president following the September 11th attacks, and the whole book is just him slaughtering terrorists in all sort of inventive, incredibly violent ways, and then having uh, sex with random people in between. So it's <laughs> <laughs> it reminded me of the uh, Sex Castle book, and of course I'm blanking on oh, the yeah. Sex Castle, but it's kind of that same thing where it is just over the top action movie type dialogue. The thing with Terror Assaulter is it's way more nihilistic. It's not as tongue in cheek and fun. Oh no. All the violence is so graphic that it becomes like disturbing or comical. Oh, okay. And all of the sex is like so clinically drawn and described that it's like not <laughs> erotic in the slightest. It's uh-huh. such it's a very <laughs> off-putting book, but I really enjoyed reading it as almost like, it reminded me of almost like outsider art. It's like someone making like a sure, comic for the sure. first time or something. Not for everybody, but I sure enjoyed it. Um, one of the biggest surprises I had this week was the Suicide Squad Banana Splits one shot.
0: Um, <laughs> oh, no. So, <laughs> oh,
1: no. <laughs> so, How could uh, that I mean, not
2: th- be surprising, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: well, th- so I was at the shop, and, you know, DC's doing the sort of Hanna-Barbera crossover issues this past week. So there was, they're all on the shelf, and like they all kind of looked or sounded interesting, but, you know, due to my budget, whatever, I only grabbed one, and it was this one. Because it sounded the most bizarre, and it really was. Um, Yeah. So I don't know if anybody remembers the Banana Splits. It was like this live-action show with these guys wearing these animal costumes that played bubblegum pop. And that's basically the whole premise of the show.
0: remember I don't think anyone knows who these people you know that's the thing I when I saw this is like I was in like reading an issue of of the flash and I saw a promo for this and I was like what the hell is the banana splits and why did why does everything look so devious if this is a (laughs) Hanna-Barbera product like what is happening on this cover I was like, I don't know if
2: any of you have ever taken an LSD bender in Chuck E. Cheese and stared a little too hard at the animatronic, uh, uh, you know, band players. uh."
1: Nick, whether you intended or not, you basically captured what the Banana Splits is like to watch. um, um, It is funny because that's actually the first joke in the comic is the Banana Splits are on their way to a gig in Gotham and they get pulled over by the police and the police don't know who they are. And the Banana Splits are like, how come no one remembers us? So that's kind of the first joke. They end up getting recruited by Amanda Waller to rescue the Suicide Squad. Um, it's a really fun <laughs> issue. I really enjoyed it. It was written by Tony Bedard, who also wrote the um, Kentucky Fried Chicken tie-ins that oh, the past so, few years okay. for DC. Okay. So it's that same type of... It's tongue-in-cheek, but they kind of play it straight. Like No one questions what the Banana Splits are or that the fact that they're a band and also anthropomorphic animals. They're just kind of accepted and they roll with it. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and the backup of this is the uh, Snagglepuss story written by Mark Russell with art by Howard Porter. And it's basically the character Snagglepuss from the 60s reimagined as a Tennessee Williams-esque Southern playwright who's being <laughs> questioned by Congress during the, you know, the um, McCarthy era, you know, hearings, the blacklist of, you know, creators and stuff. So red scare and everything. Red's, yeah. yeah, it's... And it's weird because it's, it's a short story and it looks like it's just setting up an ongoing Snagglepuss series. So, I don't know. Um, if you have a few extra bucks in your pocket, it might be worth checking out some of these Hanna-Barbera comics because they're just kind of like dumb entertainment fun. I really enjoyed it. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's that's a fantastic. <laughs> um, of course, I read Cave Carson Has a Cybernetic Eye, number six. Had kind of a weird cliffhanger. I feel like all of these young animal books are wrapping up their first arc and I'm curious which ones are going to survive to a second. I'm not sure, based on the ending of this, if Cave Carson will survive. I really hope it does, because I really like the book. Um, also, the superpowers backup on this issue by Tom Scioli wraps up the first volume in a completely open, cliffhanger way as well. So I'm wondering what's going to happen with that. That's going to show up somewhere else. So it was a really good issue, but kind of a weird ending for the uh, first volume of, this, the, of the book. Uh, speaking of endings... Oh, boy. A bittersweet ending this week was... Black Widow number twelve, yeah. the final issue of the Chris Samnee and Mark Wade run on this book. I absolutely love this book unconditionally. This was a perfect ending to the book, but I'm also going to really miss this title. So I don't want it to end, but I'm glad it ended this way. Perfect. No book spoilers. End. No I spoilers. Spoil. I haven't read it yeah. yet. It's it's a perfect ending. It's exactly the way it should end. Um, if they ever publish a giant oversized version of this book where I can just stare at the pages for hours and hours. I'll break the bank and buy it. I just it's such oh, yeah. a little, beautiful, beautiful book. And it kind of said it's ending, but I couldn't couldn't have wanted a better ending for it.
0: That's awesome. That's fantastic. Nick Nick, what did you read this week? Uh, I read quite a and bit. And how have you been? Yeah. Know, how have you oh. been? You know, I, I feel Thanks. like we skip over that on the second person on the show. So yeah. how have you been and how have comic books been? <laughs> oh, no one cares. Uh, uh,
2: <laughs> you're just here for my my books. That's all you care about. You're the tastemaker. I mean, it's true. If this was about my well-being, we would have had that discussion a long time ago. No. (laughs) And uh, this is... uh, I uh, go into my own uh, self-analyzed psychiatric evaluation at this point. No. Uh, So, I read the massive 6 through 12. Uh, You could say that I've been on a massive bender. All right, you're Uh, done. That's done uh, for me this week.
1: Uh.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You could also say that these massive puns just... They just keep coming. They're, they're 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 the gift that keeps on giving. I read two arcs. <clears throat> One was sub uh, subcontinental, which is this whole idea that these um, oil rigs sort of are cobbled together in the middle of the ocean, and they form this utopian society. and And the uh, the crew of the massive show up, and they're oddly very welcomed there because they're kind of. Semi-pacifist, sort of hippie-ish Live-and-let-live live people themselves uh, But of course, as they spend time on this utopia They start to pull back the veneer on uh, How one manages to uh, preserve a utopia and, and what that takes And frequently, uh, the uh, method of keeping it together uh, Is usually not very uh, idyllic Nor uh, democratic in its own right uh, so there was mm-hmm. that. Uh, like I wrote in the notes, it, uh, the place seems to have a hotel California policy. Uh, you can never really leave, or however the song goes. Who knows? Who? Who? It's, it's a bad song. <laughs> who cares? Uh, we we can talk about the Eagles if we want to as well. I've got thoughts there. Um, <clears throat> I also read the Polaris arc, which I think is the only arc in this book that has rotational artists, mm-hmm. including uh, Declan Shelby, who would. Who worked with Brian Wood on Moon Knight uh, Northlanders, Conan as well as, and you know what, it wouldn't be this podcast without a very difficult name that I still put in the notes and still attempt to say, <laughs> so Dan Gilles Zejli Uh sorry about your name, but your work on Starve is great, that was with Brian Wood as well, so I mean, lesson learned here if you work with Brian Wood, you're kind of set for life, it's sort of like Joss Whedon, um, if you work with him once, you're going to just keep getting work, and you'll get typecast, and you'll only do science fiction and fantasy stuff for the rest of your career, and people might not right. take you seriously, but it's still money, so you'll do it. Um, <laughs> uh, I read Ether number 5. Uh, I think the fourth issue was the high point for this book. The fifth issue left me with a lot of questions, many of which I don't think Matt can wanted me to be left with not the ones like oh man you're gonna have so many questions for arc 2 but more like oh man you got confused and now you're not really certain you understand this book and maybe you should actually go read the other issues again Mm -hmm. um so i mean correct me if i'm wrong with this mike you sort of learn that there's sort of a time distortion property going on when you jump between worlds a la yeah. interstellar a la well, right.
0: Was, there was mention of that there's hints of that in the earlier issues yeah um but without without spoiling the whole issue I will acknowledge your notes and say yes. How about that? <laughs> okay.
2: Yeah, that's fair.
0: Sorry, folks um, at home. If you want to talk about either number five, please ping us on Twitter or jump on the Goodreads group and talk to us about that. <laughs> I
2: mean, the book also very clearly left the door open for like a second arc. I don't know when we're going to get it, but they were like, I guess we'll have to solve that mystery later. And I'm like, okay, I get it.
0: I get it. I think there were notes in the back of the issue that said later this year, like in September or something. Oh. the second arc. So well, we're going to just have like a nice time gap b- between the two.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's not like they're actually putting these things down on print in an issue I'm already reading and if I paid attention, I would figure these things out because right. then then I wouldn't have an excuse for not understanding this stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I I read Batman 16 and 17. You know me. I catch up, but I stay behind. That's how my reading policy goes. And uh I so I finally started the I am Bane arc. Uh I'm not crazy about more Bane. I'm not crazy about more Finch on art, but what do you want? Um, I, I totally get, uh, Kate was complaining to me, and I think complaining is the right word, Kate, so when you hear this, you <laughs> think about it, it was complaining about how when they uh, when they have the, the Bat family get together at the Batman-themed restaurant, she's like, I can't tell which one is which. They all have the same face. Um, and to some extent, yeah, I, I kind of agree. Grayson looks a bit like Jason, and Jason looks a bit like Bruce, and you kind of have to go by the hairstyles uh, to sort of figure it out. Um, but I do like how Tom King really riffs on just this whole demented fraternity that is being a robin in terms of like oh yeah raise your hand if you've died ha 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 that's all of us <laughs> yeah. except for duke who was like wait am yeah, i gonna yeah, die yeah <laughs> duke, duke's like the you know he's like uh like is this normal like is this like is this a joke is this like a hazing thing that's going on right now like what's wrong with you guys this is pretty fucked up um and i love when damien pulls the red hood toy out of the happy meal and he's so disappointed mm -hmm. and i'm like you and me both buddy like (laughs) 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 uh and 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 batman dumping off all of the robins at the fortress of solitude and you can tell superman's kind of like so like the the problem is bane right you know it's like a venom tweaking junkie like i could kill him and two or three seconds this this wouldn't be a problem and batman's like no i gotta just take care of these people okay and leaves mm-hmm. uh loved it loved it loved it uh the writing is fine but we don't need any more bane uh what else um all-star batman number eight that's a uh, snyder and giuseppe camancoli i actually really liked this issue um, even though I think Grant Morrison already told this story. I mean and Grant Morrison wasn't the first either where it's like, you know, what if this whole weird Batman story of getting inspired and, and then having all these weird villains with all these odd quirks? And what if this is all <laughs> like sort of a mental issue or some sort of instability or psychotic breakdown or something and and grant morrison did this before where we had batman pushing around the homeless bruce wayne pushing around the shopping cart which like if you haven't read that story go read that story (laughs) you want to talk about batman having plans on plans on plans on plans go read that um Mm -hmm. what was that was that like shadow of the fist or whatever of the hand or something paul
1: uh it wasn't the Black Glove. No, that was, that oh, was, was the one right after, that was Batman R.A.P. It
2: wasn't that? Yeah. Was it Rip?
1: It was Yeah, Batman R.A.P. Yeah, yeah, Right after there was one right after Black Glove.
2: Okay. Yeah. Go read that. Uh that's a fun one.
1: <laughs> yes, go read that.
2: But yeah. I did really like there were two things I really liked about this issue. Steve Wan's lettering. For uh, Mad Hatter was really really interesting. It was kind of like very narrow and kind of they almost looked like bo- like bones joining like the the cross uh, the cross lines of the lettering. It was very uh, disconcerting, uh, and I also like that the whole Mad Hatter like iconic hat mind control thing where he uses those little hat size cards or whatever um, is sort of modernized into a sort of altered reality venture capitalist uh kind of silicon valley-esque startup thing that bruce wayne decided to pass mm-hmm. on uh i thought that was a very clever reinvention of him uh
0: and i, th- I thought that yeah. was kind of neat um, whoa what am i missing in this book i, I yeah, yeah this is uh, uh, yeah <laughs> i need to read yeah. uh, i need to catch up i guess or whatever there two issues and i just was like i don't mm-hmm. know if i want to keep going with this book but maybe I, this, 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 sounds like right up my alley for like weird alternate think, Batman stories.
1: Yeah. Mike, I think once you get past the two face story, you'd probably really like it. Cause each issue focuses on a different character and it is sort mm-hmm. of a weird, like tweaked reinvention of that. Okay. Villain. So
0: yeah. Okay.
2: I, yeah. I can be down with he's, that. He's like a spurned venture capitalist. It, it's kind of, it's clever. I like it. That's a lot. awesome. Um, last thing I wanted to say really quickly, if you haven't read the spirit, Uh, The Corpse Makers, it's all done by Francavia, including the story which, and I have to say this because I got to hand this to him, Um, if you're not known for being a writer and you're not established as a writer, uh, and maybe it's not your forte, like, there's nothing wrong with telling a simple but effective story and just letting your art you know do the work and letting your art shine and that's what i really really like about this story is it's franca via telling a simple story about people getting missing going missing and getting snatched up and it's simple and it's effective and it's not convoluted it's not someone biting off more than they can chew and letting their talents shine where they lie and tony s daniel um there's maybe something to be learned from this (laughs) because why why could i just go completely positive and complimentary when i can just also throw some shade and just turn this thing a little bit negative yeah
1: yeah yeah so nick have you read uh francesco Francavilla's black beetle stuff they did a few years ago
2: yeah i was gonna say like this is more or less basically him doing that with a franchise property and i think that's why it works so
1: well yeah yeah that sounds good cool
0: well for me this week oh boy i i actually didn't read a lot i've been super busy showing some family around the city um and going to broadway shows and actually i don't know just doing stuff in new york as as you know you tend to do
1: eating eating big slices of pizza and is this where we're supposed
2: to feel bad for you
0: yeah, yeah, you know, you're supposed to really feel bad for me that oh, I get to okay. hang out in New York City. Um, <laughs> you so, should have put boo-boo. that in the notes so I'd know. <laughs> so, so you could build up the fake uh S- So sympathy. I would know, yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Well, I did manage to read a few comic books on Monday and Tuesday, so I'll go through those really quick because I want to point out two things that I really loved and two things that uh, I was really sad about. So... <laughs> to start, I, let's just... I'll give you an even balance of feelings. How about that? Uh, so I started reading, uh, catching up. I was two issues behind on Punisher, uh, Becky Cloonan, with Matt Horak doing Pencils Now, um, and he emulating a Dylan style, which I think hmm. is really it's got to be really hard to do because like you look at the faces on the characters in issues nine and 10 and you can tell that they are Steve Dillon. Like the faces are Steve Dillon faces, but they don't (laughs) look exact like they don't have that very thin pencil. Um, like Steve Dillon traditionally does or did Yeah, should say rest in peace. And Horak manages to do that and do it really, really well. So I don't know if he's, if he's going off of inspired thumbnails or if he's going off of something else, but he is nailing that, that, that feel because I I went and looked into his other book or his other books that he's done and he has a very distinct style of his own but the fact that he's able to emulate that Dylan style and feel while still keeping the book very punishery, really gory, really in your face with the mature storyline like their like feel and art is is very impressive um and the other part that I really liked about this issue was Becky Clunan. She labeled one of the boats in this book as Demeter, and if I'm not mistaken, I believe that was one of the names of one of her stories that she wrote about someone who drowned. So I thought that was kind of a funny <laughs> little thing. Or I'm going crazy, and that's not her book, but I'm pretty sure she wrote a book called Demeter. So, Let's hope um, so for your <laughs> sake, <laughs> yeah, for yeah. my sake, um, I also read. after death number one or ad volume one whatever you want to call it call it i originally thought this was by matt kent but i apparently am crazy it's by scott snyder and jeff lemire and oh my gosh i can't believe it took me so long to get around to this book it's so heavy the writing was absolutely phenomenal like there is a whole page that is very heavy in text but the the I don't want to spoil this book for you because you should really read it but the point that that Snyder was getting at in the in the writing was so powerful I wish that 18 year old Mike could have read this book because it would have just fucked me up in all the right ways and made me think really hard about what I was doing in life and just maybe slap myself slap some sense into myself um but man 80 number one holy cow what a solid book. I'm very much looking forward to reading number two. You just have to get in the right mind space to go light art, heavy writing. You're going to read a prose novel in comic book form, and it's going to really, really work. I I love this book. I think Snyder's on like a serious bender, and he's going to just get even more intense with the following volumes of this series. So really, really excited about that. Uh, I also read Lazarus number 26, and here's one of my sad points. I was really sad to hear that Rucka had to take almost six months off uh, with all of the craziness that was happening in the United States, like he was so, I guess, pent up and frustrated with the world that he couldn't write anything so he's been like super delayed with a lot of stuff I'm, I don't know if his Wonder Woman book was delayed or if he's still on Wonder Woman I haven't been following that but Lazarus took a major break and he wrote like a four-page back issue essay about why everything is screwed up and what we can do as people if you do not agree with the president um, and what his you know he's doing and what his uh, cabinet's doing like he wrote this whole big thing about what you can do to protest to, to basically resist and stuff it is really insane he went he goes way off like as as a person who can publish whatever they want in a book that's selling he goes way off and just says i want to sound like a crazy person cuz i want to be wrong but <laughs> and oh man the ending was crazy but the the sad part about this was that Lazarus, the main story, is going to take a break for the next six months. The But in place of the regular book, they're going to be pub- publishing six one-off stories that fill in other pieces of the world, other Lazarai, other factions in the world and what they've been doing during the whole main conflict in the story. Hmm. So that's going to be really cool. And they're going to be swapping out artists and writers. So each one shot is going to have a different artist and co-writer with Rucka on the book. Um And so, because this isn't completely because of Ruck, I think, it's also Michael Lark, he did have a bit in the back of the book, and he said that he wanted to take a break, and so instead of just stopping the book for six months, instead what they're going to do is do this mini-series. So, combination of weird things, but Lazarus 26 was by far the most badass episode or issue of this series so far. Like, I thought that things couldn't get cooler than the moment when they were, you know, the Lazarai were fighting on the old oil tanker that's been turned into, like, this pleasure place. Like, no. Issue 26 (laughs) tops that, like, ten times over. So, if you're not reading this book, what are you doing? It's 26 issues in. Come on, it's been way too long. You should be reading this book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Read this book. The other I'm not thing. Oh, this sorry. Book, so. um, I know, Paul. I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, I will. Oh, though. man. But it's, it's so cool. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things. I think a lot of it is in CU, so Paul, you can maybe get right away now. From, you, know, you don't have to image. buy it. You can just <laughs> wonder it. WonderCon
2: sale. 60% <laughs> okay, off okay. everything. Yeah. 60% or, off everything.
0: Or see what's in Comixology Unlimited because yeah. it is there. Um, otherwise, I read Transformers vs. G.I. Joe, the movie, and I actually want to say that this is a sad note for me because, one, this is the last Transformers vs. G.I. Joe book that we're going to (laughs) get. yeah, Um, And, two, I was kind of disappointed with how short this book was because it was supposed to be like a quote-unquote movie adaptation of the comic book, which... I absolutely love the I, just the <laughs> concept of it and the book itself feels like what you would take away from the movie or take like what a movie would take away from the comic uh, and okay. meaning that it was so not even close to what the actual comic book was <laughs> in, in a lot of ways like they chose one teeny tiny storyline and then decided to run with that and glossed over so many other things. I felt like it was a big middle finger to the movie industry and about what they do to comic book movies. I thought that was a really bold move for not only IDW, but also Hasbro to just be like, who cares, right? To just, (laughs) because Hasbro, yeah, Hasbro is right. Anyways, but it's just a big middle finger and Cioli totally nails it. Like there's articles at the end that are kind of like, this is the greatest movie ever made. What a great film. And it's, if you read that (laughs) and then you go and read the other series, like as a comic book fan reading this other comic book I'm like super mad at the way that he condensed it <laughs> but I, I feel like that was totally intentional so intentional? Um, while huh. I, again I was sad but I was very happy in some other ways so and that, that's what makes a great comic book so I really loved what Seoli did and oh man it's just top-notch Tom Scioli art I just want more of it every day of my life
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome
0: yeah so that's that was me um, but let's move on, as we always do. Let's talk about what comics we're excited for this upcoming week. Comic books are released on April 5th, 2017. What are you both excited for? Let's let's start with Paul.
1: Well, uh, I chose this book, not that I'm not excited for it, but I chose it because Nick took my other pick. So um, I was <laughs> ah, going to talk about ah. Nick's pick, but instead, in the uh, interest of having a variety, um, I chose Superman number 20, This is the aftermath of the Superman Reborn storyline, which ran through the past two issues of Superman and the past two issues of Action Comics. And I hadn't been reading Action, but I went ahead and grabbed those two issues just so I can get the full story. It wasn't great, but the climax of that Superman Reborn storyline is really, really interesting. So the summarized version is that since the DC Rebirth, there's been one Superman who appears to be the pre-Flashpoint Superman. And in this particular story, in action comics, there is a Clark Kent who is not Superman, shows up. So, spoiler alert, in the Superman Rebirth storyline, it turns out that that alternate Clark Kent is Mr. Mixes-Pitalik pretending to be Clark Kent to oh. screw with Superman. Whoa. So, they he ends up kidnapping Superman's son, Jonathan, and Superman and Lois have to go fight to get Jonathan back, but then Lois like doesn't remember that they're married. It's a weird story, but basically, in in the end, the New Fifty Two Superman and Lois, who had been in like a sort of suspended animation, they show back up and they fuse with this uh, pre Flashpoint Superman and Lois Lane. So basically, what? that re- it rewrites the DC universe so that both uh, the Pre Flashpoint and New Fifty Two both happened, and they both exist at the same time. I thought so, New Fifty Two <laughs> Superman
2: was dead.
1: Um, no, 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 he's not dead. Well, if he died, then <laughs> okay. this is when he came back. Yeah. Okay. So, see, so because I, I read, I read the the end of the New Fifty Two Superman story recently, and this had kind of gotten jumbled in my mind, maybe, but so
0: this see this is why <laughs> superhero comic books are hard because <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> i mean cause i don't
1: have i don't have my you know cork board <laughs> with the string and the pictures from what i've heard you need it for show this you yeah exactly yeah. but wow long story short um it basically rewrites the dc universe so that both new 52 and pre-flashpoint both happened and there's a hint at the end that someone has been witnessing this and that someone is obviously Dr. Manhattan. So right. There's a little oh tag at the end of issue Lord. 19 that says, like, hey, there's someone who's been watching all this who's probably not going to be happy with what Superman just did. So... so wow,
0: okay, wow. All right.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, they've been hinting at incorporating the Watchmen mythos into the DC universe for a right. while, ever since Rebirth. This is one of the instances where that's going to happen. So, okay. It's, it's, yeah. See
0: that makes a lot of sense because I know that Batman and Flash are doing a crossover pretty soon mm-hmm. and it's directly tied to the Watchmen stuff because yeah. somehow Bruce Wayne's dad knew the Watchmen or something and so did the Flash's dad and like I I don't know. I I've been only re- I've been reading them both and I'm still like how is this even connected? Doesn't and I'm work. wondering if I'm the only person that is wondering that because <laughs> I'm not seeing something or everyone is just as confused as me. So we will I see would, yeah. flash 21 and Batman 21, but sorry, Paul, I'm go just going
1: to assume that I'm just going to assume everyone's just as confused. Cause I was kind of confused okay. reading Superman. So, but okay, uh, so Superman 20, uh, it's Peter Tomasi and Patrick Gleason, the, as a creative team again, and they're going to follow up on this and hopefully make sense of it. So it sounds like they were going to get back to the classic Superman, uh, Superman's going to... Clark Kent and Superman, who are one again, are going to move to Metropolis. They've been living in uh, Hamilton instead of Metropolis. So, hopefully it's a return to the classic Superman. It'd be nice to see. And maybe they'll explain what all this stuff is about the guy who lives on Mars and is watching all of it. So, we'll <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what about you, Nick? Well,
2: uh, before we actually get to more of that Watchmen stuff and Batman 21 and The Flash 21... We're going to have to put up with Batman 20, uh, which is my pick of the week. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll start with two uh, truths regarding this issue. Uh, one, <laughs> I'm behind on the series, and two, my poll this week is very, very small, which means mm-hmm. we're going to talk about Batman 20, um, which uh, the uh, the tagline for this book is, uh, No more tricks, no more allies, just Batman and Bane. When the final blood spills, nothing will ever be the same for the Dark Knight. Look... I'm sure he'll be fine, okay? <laughs> Look, I get previews. No, know. We already know, know there's it's... a flat crossover coming. So. I was <laughs> yeah. just on DC.com today. They have Batman, like, 26 listed on there, all right? You know what? It's Bruce Wayne. It's still Bruce Wayne. The sun will come up tomorrow, okay? Don't listen to this shit, all right? He's going to be fine. It's just Bane. He's a tweaker. Batman all always right. has to fight him by himself because he's stubborn like that and really... He would get by with a little help from his friends, maybe if he had some better ones, and this wouldn't be an issue. Mm -hmm. Anyway, next month, we're going to get Jason Fabric on (laughs) our... This month, we're still going to have David Finch. The month after next month, we're still going to have David Finch again... No, I'm sorry. 20 is Finch, then it's two issues of Fabic. then we're going to get Finch again. So if you don't like Finch, keep (laughs) your seatbelt buckled, because... Uh, He's coming back, uh, but (laughs) I, I, you know what? We've we've had enough Bane. We've had enough Bane. I'm 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 ready for something new. And the fact that I'm reading this alongside All Star Batman, where it's like a new villain every month, new artist every month, everything is bright and shiny and new and sexy. Uh, You know, Uh, Tom (laughs) King. Tom King is holding this book together. Full credit to Tom King. I think the writing is really what's kept this arc alive for me. Um, Paul, maybe you love this arc. Maybe it's just me.
1: yeah, I'm going to disagree slightly. I've really enjoyed Batman since it started. You know, I've, I think Tom King's doing a really interesting job. And this, mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly. Uh, where things happen, so I'm going to avoid spoilers since I know you're behind, but there is one issue where he does an amazing job explaining this connection between Batman and Bane and why they're such interesting foils for each other. Yes. And I really, Um, really enjoyed uh. that. And I like the fact that Tom King is telling one long story. Things that happened in the very first issue are still important now. Yeah. Hmm. You know, it's a long, festering story, which I think could be maybe you know can take a while to really understand and appreciate so i'm yeah. really really enjoying Batman. i re- i like bane as a villain regardless like i don't have a problem with him but this made me appreciate him in a different way so just hold on nick it'll all make sense in the end yeah
2: i mean it, <laughs> it seems like he's you know asking people to be more patient and in, in the fact that he's trying to do more with a character that people have usually attempted to do a whole lot less so exactly yeah
0: well, we'll see, you know, maybe it's just I read Finch. this book too.
2: I read this book yeah. too, so oh, I'm no have, cares, I Oh, no one cares, Mike. An <laughs> no one cares. No one cares. You know what? Okay, as an <laughs> no, outside go.
0: bat as a former outside Batman, you know, reader, I will say that I was on the edge of dropping this book around issue 7 or 8. Okay. And I told myself I'll give it one more arc. And that's when and then I am Suicide started. And it just rocked me. And I was like, hell to the yeah. Like, I don't even yeah. know who half these characters are. I know Catwoman. And she's killed a <laughs> bunch of people. What is this? What is this mm-hmm. thing that happened? And, and, th- and now I'm totally addicted to this book. Like, when it comes out, it's at the top of my poll, And I've never, ever, ever been like that with a DC book. Except for Constantine the Hellblazer. Because, come on, that was like <laughs> the greatest book ever. But, I mean, Ross- Riley Rossman, what are you going to do? But still, yeah. this is this book has been unbelievably good and I did not think I could get this heavy into a Batman book and Bane as a villain like, forget all the Dark Knight bullshit movies. Like, this is what I wanted to see when it, when we saw Bane. I really didn't know much outside of, like, he's a luchador who's got this venom, and there is so much more depth in this book, and I love it. Like, that, the thing that Paul was talking about, about the whole foil to each other thing, like, that story alone, like, had me flipping pages to the point where I was turning my computer monitor to try to get the page to transition faster on Comixology. <laughs> it, was, it was really good. <laughs> okay, so, okay. Um, mm-hmm. i'm all on board for this big long slow burn because i think with batman it's got to be batman superman wonder woman those have got to be characters you really got to be you have to tiptoe on because you have to deliver action and story but you also want to deliver a big long story and that's also and i think that's really hard to do Could you send that an email form to (laughs) Zack snyder please (laughs) yes 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 (laughs) i will i'll get right on that after this episode okay But uh, I I wanted to throw my two cents in there because I'm going to talk about Jughead, which he is uh, not (laughs) nearly as exciting as Batman, I think, as far as action goes, because they're Jughead versus Bane crossover. I'm waiting for it. Come on, guys. Come on, deliver <laughs> Jughead, this. Jughead number 13 comes out. We're continuing the storyline where Reggie won a video game contest and now everyone has to be his servant for a month. And so they have <laughs> formed a band called the Reggies. And it is ridiculous because Reggie just wants everyone to be his friends because he's always mean. He doesn't know why. But now everyone has to be his friend. And he's like, this is what I've always wanted. <laughs> and it's goofy. <laughs>
1: that sounds because For great. some
0: reason, this is happening in the Jughead book rather than the Reggie book, but... Anyways, right. I, there's not much more to say about this because there's not nearly as much depth <laughs> in this book. One thing I will say, Ryan North has been doing a great job with this book in his little his little signature move that he does in his comics where he puts these little lines of dialogue at, or lines of caption at the bottom of every page while you're reading. So you get little inside jokes as you go along where something happens on the page and then he references it or makes a joke or adds a little continuation throwaway joke. And that's always fun. It's just the downside is that for some reason when you're reading digital, it doesn't always get focused, which is weird. So you have to read it in Ooh. full page. But um, anyways, it's, it's a pretty good book. I, I really, Jughead has been consistently funny since the beginning. So if you need something that's a little bit lighter than Batman or Superman, <laughs> <laughs> Jughead <laughs> is, is a great choice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that sounds great. I'm way behind on this. side. I think I read the first two issues maybe and it didn't click with me. So maybe oh. I'll go back and get back into Jughead. So.
0: Yeah, the, the Chip Zadarsky stuff is good, but when Ryan North comes in, he, like, amps up the goofiness, which okay, is sure. something to be said, because Zdarsky definitely kicks everyone in the butt with that. <laughs> and according to Kara, who's been on the show a handful of times, you know, she was telling me that everything that's happened in Jughead so far has already happened in another Jughead or Archie comic book. So when they did like the Jughead's sleeping and he thinks that everyone's superheroes, that actually happened, you know? Mm -hmm. Or when there was uh, an alternate universe in another city where everyone was gender bent, that already happened. Like there was full stories about the gender bent uh, Riverdale (laughs) crew. So I I think that's what's still happening with this Jughead series. And I I really (laughs) think that that's hilarious so that old and new Jughead readers can really get a kick out of the book.
1: Our topic this episode covers something that is incredibly important to comic books, obviously, and it's something that maybe we don't spend enough time thinking about or talking about, and that is how comic book art is actually created. Yes. And, <laughs> you know, does, is it simply a, something that arises on the page, or does someone actually have to put a pencil to a page and make it happen? Is it a one-person? Is it a collaborative process? The relationship between the artist and the writer? All these big questions we will, in our meager ways, try to answer For you today. (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) Seeing that we're all not comic book artists, we will try very, very hard.
1: (laughs) But
2: like most podcasts, we are not afraid to get in there and wade into those very deep waters we are massively unqualified to discuss. (laughs) This is I Read Comic Books. That is our quest. Yes.
1: (laughs) So, I mean, maybe to sort of start, we can talk about the relationship between an artist and a writer. Because I think uh, throughout history, um unfortunately the writer has been seen as the sort of creative force behind a lot of comic books and that's something i think has changed thankfully in the past few decades but the relationship between the writer and the artist where is where comics are created more to, more or less so yeah how does that process sort of start mm mm-hmm. mhm
0: well I think like in a lot of ways what will happen is, depending on the publisher, right, um, <laughs> there will be some sort of relationship found between the writer and the artist and whether that is a professional one in that you say I want to write this book or someone says I want to write this book and an artist says I want to draw something and then the, you know management says okay you two work together which is the way things kind of work in some cases at Marvel or DC or Dark Horse. Um, <laughs> And you'll you'll see these people just come together and they'll create something and there may may be a friendly relationship or a friendship may grow and those creators may work together in the future because of that. But in some cases, it's it's just you're assigned a person to work with and then you do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas at other publishers, and I, I listed Dark Horse as one of them, but as they in the previous sec- section, but also in you know for other publishers like Image and Dark Horse and Boom and Oni Press. Um, Creators will come together and there will be a writer and an artist or a writer, artist, an inker, and they'll say, let's make a book together and they'll have to supply like a five page sample or even a full issue to say, here is our pitch for this comic book. And if that gets picked up, then that team will work together for the foreseeable future with some very few exceptions. Um, or if the contract that is negotiated for that book is determined in a different way to say, yes, artists can swap out, so on and so forth. Um, and that's where ownership gets a little muddy, and we won't go into that. But the creation process for collaboration goes, you know, people are brought together to create a book, and how that back and forth works between writing and art is very dependent on the creators themselves.
1: Yeah, and I think that's that's a sort of the mysterious thing for us as, you know, purely fans who aren't involved with the creation process, is how exactly does that relationship play out? I know... On previous episodes we've talked about the Marvel method, this idea that a writer will pitch a story idea to an artist, the artist will basically draw the whole issue and then send it back to the writer for filling in captions and dialogue. I think that process or a modified version of it is way more common than we realize. Sure. Because, you know, the credits are listed writer, artist, and then inker you know, pencil, inker, letter, all that underneath that. But that process between the writer and artist is probably way more fluid than we probably assume for the large part. Yeah. Well, I think,
0: and that I mean, it's obviously still I say obviously, but it's probably more likely still happening at the Marvel, in, in at Marvel, um, with few exceptions such as you know your Brian Michael Bendis who does write a full script and he says that in his sample scripts that he's posted online, like I write a full script, I don't follow the Marvel method because that's just how I do things. But I think that's mm-hmm. because Bendis came from an indie background where he was writing books and then just handing them to an artist, and the artist yeah. was drawing the pages and the beats as the art, as the writer had intended. Uh, and then the letterer would be filling in on those pages and trying to make it all work with the panels. And I think, like, you know, a lot of credit doesn't go to the letterer about them fitting the dialogue and the captions into the page. But the artist mm-hmm. plays a huge part in that by leaving space and, and for captions and for lettering to make sure that it all will fit. And that's, like, to me, like a monstrous undertaking. Like, how do you know <laughs> how font and text and bubbles are going to fit especially when you're working with like crazy letterers or you're working with crazy writers like a Mark Millar. Um, Mark Miller, I never can say his name right. We, someone, someone, <laughs> looks someone,
2: like Millar pronounced like Miller. Okay. Unless, yep. Of course I'm wrong, but I think someone right. dinged me about it
0: last week and I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about, but where, where <laughs> you've got like two word letters, but you're like the bubble needs to be half the page or half the, the panel because you're trying to emphasize the letters. But, again we're i'm getting beyond the actual art creation process here um by saying that because there there's a ton that goes into it not just spacing character positioning but you know that the way that it's actually drawn like if it is if is it done with actual pencils and then later actual ink on paper Mm. um or is it done all digitally like someone like fiona staples who does pure digital art and she does everything from um she does the pencils then she'll do a layer of quote-unquote inks but I think that's just heavier pencils for her because it's all Mm -hmm. digital and then she'll do a whole layer of coloring and for a while I know she was posting YouTube videos of her coloring like chunks of pages of Saga and it was mind-blowing to see her she had this like palette like in her Photoshop or Illustrator file whatever she was using that was just like random colors that she had sampled off of other pictures on the internet. And when she Hmm. couldn't find an actual, a color that she liked, she would just Google something and then she'd find that picture and then drop it into Illustrator or Photoshop and then sample the section in the color and then bring that into her palette and say, okay, now I want to use that for the sunset. Mind boggling Hmm. stuff. I'll see if I can find a link to those videos because it is super cool to see her go through that process in like 10 minutes spent on a specific panel just to make sure that a sunset looks right. Like that Mm -hmm. is so awesome to me.
1: So do you think that, I mean, that creative process, is that something that she chooses to do? That's her way of making art versus someone that is more comfortable just doing maybe breakdowns and pencils and then passing along to someone else to do inks. I like that the distinction between someone who just works alone is going to do every step of the process by themselves versus someone who's willing to work as a part of a team and collaborate. I wonder what in their artistic sort of makeup makes them choose one style versus the other. You know,
0: I think a lot of that has to do with speed, right? I think that if doing the pencils especially if you're actually writing with or using pencils, you're doing the pencils and then the inks and then the coloring. Like, those are all distinct steps when you're actually doing physical work like that. Um, And the colors aren't done so much physically anymore. The majority of colors, as far as I know, are done digitally, with the exception being like Tom Scioli, who literally uses crayons, which is fucking (laughs) insane to me, Yeah. um, and colored (laughs) pencils. But like, uh, Geordi Belair, for instance, she's, you know, she is the god to your colorist at this point in comic books. Um, she does, you know, like, at one point, I think she did, like, ten books in one month, and it's like, how do you do that if you're actually doing physical colors? But, no, she's she's doing it all digitally, and that's not to say that the job is easier, but it's Like it is in a way because you can just fill a whole panel or fill a whole section really quickly with a paint bucket tool rather than like layering letters of layering CMYK dots on top of things, (laughs) um, which is a whole different other thing. Um, because the, in the, as far as the history of coloring goes, that's how colorists used to do it. They used to actually have to layer invisible pages um, on top of the pencils and then they would fill in these mm-hmm. dots that were like stenciled out around the colors. And that's why like in old comic books, you'll see a lot of bleed because that means that the, the invisible layer shifted a little bit. And so you'll see like the green of Doctor Doom's cape, you know, kind of bleeding into the background where there's mountains that are a brown or something like that. And you can tell because it's the shape of of his cape, but it's just bleeding over a little bit. But coloring is a whole whole extra step to things.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
0: I apparently have a lot of thoughts on how all of this is done. Um, so <laughs> well, that, you guys can just I, leave, and I'll just monologue yeah, for the next yeah, yeah. twenty minutes.
1: <laughs> no, I think that's really interesting because I mean, that's kind of what I was hinting at with the, my previous like thought, where it's that creative process is somewhat still mysterious, even though we know all the steps are. It's like why certain choices are made. Or why artists work a certain method—it's all sort of this mysterious artistic process that even as fans will never quite maybe really appreciate, even though we're just seeing the, because we're just seeing the finished product. Yeah, you know.
0: See, we're definitely going to have to get a, a creator on this show and just be like, yeah. let us let us just bug you for the next thirty minutes of a thing that you learned in comic book creation one hundred and
1: one. Yeah, I mean, so speaking of you know a collaborative process where you have the traditional separation between a penciler and an inker i think even that distinction is sometimes confusing or mysterious to a lot of readers cuz is the inker just tracing what the penciler drew or right. are they in- embellishing it and it's you know if if you can get your hands on one of those those books that like IDW publishes, where they do have the original pencils or the original inks, and you can once you've them. mortgaged your house, yeah, <laughs> well, <exactly>. yeah. <laughs> well, the once the, you've mortgaged the, your
2: house to the Kirby to buy one I bought is book. reasonably
1: priced. The, the, the one I have is reasonably priced. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can literally see how the inker's choices end up in the final book, the final finished product. Yeah, you know, and the the importance of an inker and how some inkers can radically change the way a pencil one penciler's you know images look from yeah. start to finish it's, it's always an amazing process
0: to, and to that point I, I at this point i can barely read any steve mcniven book that doesn't have dexter mm. vines on inks because yeah. steve mcniven's art is top notch it's fantastic stuff but if you look at the difference between work that he did on oh, i can't even remember the name of the book i think it was an x-men book versus what he did with civil civil war two distinct inkers dexter vines inks change the actual like change the entire feel of the comic book in (laughs) comparison and and not not to discredit this other inker whose name i can't think of um i can't even think of the book so whatever i'm an idiot but Still, it's 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 mind blowing to see how much how much an inker has an effect on a book, and you can look at that like someone like Todd McFarlane. That's been his thing for a really long time. Yeah. Um. When he was back, to, when he was doing Spider-Man comics, he would ink his own books, and when he didn't ink his own books, it looked like a totally different artist was drawing the comic. It, it's crazy. I know that Nick has a lot of thoughts on inkers, so I'll let him <laughs> yeah. jump in now, and I'll just shut up for the next ten minutes. Yeah, and- <laughs> no, I
2: was I was gonna say like for for people out there who maybe are a little bit baffled by the impact of inks, just go look at a book. Um, there, obviously, there are artists out there. We've talked about this that ink their own. They ink their own pencils, and and you don't see it as much at DC or Marvel because that's very much a, like how can we expedite the process as much as possible, and you know how can we have contingency plans in which you know people don't uh, overwork themselves, and and that's why you know they have their own inkers, but if you go take a look at someone's um work where they've inked their own work and then work where they've had someone else ink their work, uh, a lot of times it can be a massive difference. And, and it's hilarious because I think a lot of people get the idea that, you know, if only someone had enough time in the day to ink their own work, it would probably be better 90% of the time. But there are plenty of examples where, like, you cross your fingers and you hope that so-and-so is not actually the one inking their own work because sometimes there are people out there that are massively better at this than, than mm-hmm. the person doing it themselves yeah
1: that's always kind of the the conversation that you know deep jack kirby fans have is like who's your favorite kirby inker and it's always like you know one person really might really like vince Royer, like i do or someone really you know might like vince well no one likes vince coletta but you know know, that (laughs) conversation is like you know one person like vince coletta could like ruin art that jack kirby did whereas someone else can embellish it and make it even better like mike Royer. so i that the role of the inker is I think often overlooked or misunderstood.
0: Yeah, I remember when we talked about the Dark Knight three coming out, and I was talking yeah. about how how interesting it was that Kubert's art on that book looked a lot like Frank Miller, and we noticed that the inker on that book was Klaus Jansen, I believe.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's
0: the same person that did all the inks for Frank Miller back in the day. And that Forever and ever. Yeah. yeah. And and it's mind blowing to say that like it's not it wasn't Miller's style that like made that book so distinct. It was Jansen's style that had a heavy yeah. hand in making sure that the faces looked in the in the like Miller style so that when he came over and did work with Kirby or excuse me, with Kubert, it looked very similar because the inks were kind of shoving it a little bit in that direction because Kubert's art does not look like Miller's art in in a no, lot of ways. No. And it's it's astounding to see how much effect an inker can have on a book like that. Like that to me just floored me when when i think paul you had pointed that out to me just blew my mind
1: and you know to maybe sort of follow up on that point klaus jansen drew the batman story gothic one of graham morrison's first batman stories back in the late right. 80s and his artwork because he drew pencils and inked it his pencils and inks look radically different than his inking work on frank miller really I mean, obviously still the same artist but obviously cause he's not drawing over frank miller it's like a weird, if you compare those two books, it's actually really interesting to see Klaus Janssen's choices as a penciler versus Klaus Jansen's working as an inker. He has a very distinct style for both, but they're both different, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think Nick had pointed it out in his in his uh, his notes that the movie Chasing Amy ruined the idea for <laughs> inkers for people. If you haven't seen the movie Chasing Amy, it's a Kevin Smith film about these two comic book creators who create a Jane Silent Bob comic book and they're everything's dumb about that movie um but i love it because (laughs) for one it's it's ben affleck being dumb and goofy and it's a kevin smith film and he always has a place in my heart but the, the joke in that movie is that inkers are just tracers. They don't actually contribute anything to the comic. They just trace over the penciler's work. <laughs> and, like, to the point where the uh, Brody, I believe, is the character, gets in this big fight with another guy at a mall because he's like, Oh, what are you, fucking tracer? And they start fisticuffs because yeah. that's what happens. It's a very <laughs>
2: industry specific joke for, like, a mass appeal movie. It's, uh, <laughs> it's strangely, <laughs> yeah. like, very, like, niche comedy, you know? And it's like, some, someone will get this for sure but um yeah uh if 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 you ever want to learn more just go ahead and get your hands on some behind the scenes artwork a lot of uh pencilers and artists will put up their process work and you can sort of see uh the impact that that inks have Um, I I was reading this other thing that talked about how it's actually not uncommon for younger pencilers to get paired with more veteran inkers, because the inkers can basically go ahead and and fix the the penciling issues
0: wherever they come up. Now, do you think that something like that is done because, in, in some cases, you may, like, there may be like a Marvel house style or a DC house style, which is something that was very common, you know, in the seventies and eighties and nineties. Would they bring in those veteran inkers to say, all right, well, we need to, you know, fix this fantastic four style because it doesn't really match the rest of the brand. Or was there, I guess maybe, and this is kind of an open question to both of you. Do you think that, um, that like the house style was more towards pencils and not on inkers?
2: Hmm. I, I would have to imagine that they were probably trying to address that at the penciling stage. That's yeah. That's not something you wanna have to always be correcting at the inking stage, because that can be uh problematic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I
1: mean yeah, it might be related to the distinction sometimes you'll see between breakdowns and finishes or pencils. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's a yeah. good yeah. point to bring up because credit, I
2: yeah. think a lot of people that are even semi-versed in comic books don't really understand or know this whole breakdowns and finishes thing because you don't see it in books as much anymore Mm
0: -hmm. what uh, well uh, what's the difference between a breakdown and a finish for someone who may not know such as maybe another person on this podcast
2: (laughs) i thought i thought you'd never ask because it's not like (laughs) we just tried to prompt it and then there was an unearthly (laughs) amount of silence following as you attempted to pick up on this very subtle clue i dropped on your foot yes um a great question (laughs) really out of left field Yes, uh, I read comic books in fighting right here for your very own you know, entertainment. <laughs> I'm waiting uh, for the Bleeding so cool the whole I- Yeah, Yeah, we're waiting for it. Come on, Rich. Uh, so the whole idea between breakdowns and finishes is that Frequently it has to do with a big two studio that's trying to really crank out art as fast as it can or the artist gets busy And so you have one artist who does the breakdowns which are largely just panel layouts or thumbnails Uh, They're not very detailed But they sort of show what's going to be going on and where the characters are going to be placed And then the finisher comes in and actually does the much more detailed pencils on top of it Um or, or with those references in hand mm-hmm. so and it, you'll sometimes see this certain comic books will oh well, I mean they should most comic books will credit appropriately in terms of breakdowns and finishes mm-hmm. uh, but you don't see it as much anymore because even at the big two I think there's maybe a bit of a push to not have people finding themselves in a situation where you need someone finishing someone else's artwork um, yeah. So you'd, yeah. yeah go ahead Paul
1: I was going to say, you know, one great example of this is if you read the DC Weekly Series 52 that they did a few years ago, Mm -hmm. probably 10 years ago at this point. But um, because it's a weekly series, they had to have a ton of different pencilers and inkers on that book constantly. But every issue had breakdowns by Keith Giffen. So you had a continuous visual sort of storytelling style from book to book, regardless of the art team it would have the same sort of logic behind the breakdowns. So you can kind of Interesting. appreciate that idea where it's like one person will lay out how th- every book is going to read quote unquote narratively. Someone else will finish in the details for the artwork.
2: It's almost like the, um, artistic equivalent of a plotter in, in mm-hmm. terms of, or, 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 the person who gets the story credit. Oh, right, you know? right, right. It's, it's, it's more of a guiding hand of consistency and continuity and control. um, and, but just over on the artistic side, um, what's really interesting, and I, I think we didn't mention, um, is that I, I think we talked about thumbnails a little bit, which is that um, certain pencilers will take the script and they'll just draw very loose, um, you know, panel layouts, not unlike what a what a person doing breakdowns would do. Um, but mm-hmm. what's interesting is that certain pencilers... Don't even bother. Certain pencilers don't even bother with doing with doing thumbnails. It's, it's not something that they, they're interested in, and they just go straight to drawing. Uh, uh, but then you also have certain teams where the actual writer will do the panels or will do the thumbnails. Uh, Grant Morrison is very well known for doing thumbnails for a lot of his work. Uh, and if yeah. you read some of his books in the back matter, you'll see uh, Grant Morrison's thumbnail breakdowns for, for his artists. Uh, they're actually not bad. I mean, if you want to hear Nick White's The More You Know segment for today, it's Grant Morrison, in terms of just a sketch penciler, is not terrible. He's actually not <laughs> bad. Huh. Uh, yeah, it's it's true.
1: That's yeah, he started as a penciler before he started writing, actually. His very first early comics, he was a draw, a penciler.
0: So. Oh, and really? Okay. Yep. Well, Did not know yeah. that. The more you know squared. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's actually really funny that you mentioned that because um, I know from reading a bunch of manga, uh, or manga is the proper way to say it, I think, Um they, that that's the way that the creative process is done over there for for weekly books because you know they put out weekly chapters for those books, and so they'll put out 18 pages every week they go in the shonen jump or at least for the shonen books and that's we can get into that and that's a whole other topic. But the writer and the artist will um, collaboratively like they'll take a script and then they'll both draw versions and present it and work together and then they'll provide a finished version to their editor and then the editor will give them the thumbs up for the artist to actually do the whole thing. Or if it's just one person writing the book. So for instance, like the Bleach series, which is a very popular book, um, only has one guy working on the book. And so every week he does like sketch outlines of everything um, with the script in bubbles and everything. And they're very, very poor looking versions, but they have general layouts for each page and how things are going to eventually look with the, you know, the full art in it. And they'll have the whole script in there to make sure that everything lays out properly, it reads well, the editor will go through that, give him a sign-off, and then he'll actually go in and create the whole book, or the whole chapter for that week. It's a really crazy process, because I don't think that that's as common in the United States for anything, like, with comics, um, to actually do, like, sketch whole like whole issues done as a sketch version to present to an editor Mm -hmm. so they get an understanding of the feel of the book before it even goes to full pencils full inks and so on and so forth so um i mean they do things a little bit different over there but they're also like i said pumping out an issue every week so um different different world
1: yeah i mean a lot of that is necessity it's just the necessity of the speed i mean that's there's a reason why if you read any of the big twos like Uh, big event books, you know, like Civil War or Blackest Night, the last issue of all those books is probably going to have at least five inkers listed in the credits. (laughs) By necessity, you know. Five (laughs) inkers, two
2: colorists, yeah. yeah. That's wild. And I think that's what makes it ever so more fascinating when you go look at something like Image, or you go look at something self-published where someone is doing their own inks, they're doing their own colors, (laughs) you know, they're doing their own lettering, um, and... Uh, as long as they have as much time as they want to do it, I, I I guess that works out. But that's just not really how the the industry at large works. The industry at large wants you know people you know set to rigid roles, and so they can have contingency plans and bring on another inker if they need another inker, bring on another colorist if
0: they need another colorist. Um, See, but that that works really well when you have a group of people who um, have a set. Like, they, they, they aren't dependent on the sales to get their paycheck, right? So, right, you know, right. when the issue comes out, they're, like, if you have five people working on a book, you got to split that profit five ways, whereas at Marvel or DC or whatever that doesn't have, like, a sales-dependent um, return for profit, um, and you get, like, a page rate instead, if you have right. five people, like, that's okay, because if the book tanks, like, you're still kind of getting paid, which... Isn't to say that it's a good thing by any means, but you know, at image, like a lot of the times you only see one, maybe two, maybe three um, extra artists on the book for colors and for ink. So usually you'll see, well, the, I guess the Quarter common line breakdown. Never, really. Well, the common mm-hmm. breakdown is usually like writer, artist, colorist, letterer. Um, And I believe that the profit-sharing goes down, you know, the further down the totem pole after pencils. Um, But the pencilist usually does the inks in a lot of cases. And I know, like, for Mm -hmm. a book like Chew, John Layman did all the letters for that whole book. Like, he not only wrote it, but he also did all the lettering for it. Um,
2: That is interesting. I never really thought about the fact that you don't ever see that many inkers listed on image books. Yeah. ever that's interesting i never Hmm. wow because you always see like if you ever look at like image cover aesthetics and now we're talking about like graphic design nth degree whatever like it's always like they have this thing about sort of the symmetry of four names you know there's like the two names at the top for penciler and um and writer and then there's sort of the two names that they try to maybe put towards the bottom of the page which is letterer and colorist and it's interesting um
0: Weird. I never thought about that. Yeah. So next time you're reading your comic book, take a look. Take a look at the at the listings of who who's actually on your book and you'll see that a comic book that comes out every month at from Image or from Dark Horse or any other smaller publisher that isn't Marvel and DC, the number of people that are actually working on that book that are listed as penciler, inker or or writer or colorist or letterer, like that number is usually very small and you'll see multiple people doing multiple roles in a lot of cases because mm-hmm. they just don't have the ability to split it that way that many ways um i believe like for saga for instance i believe that's just brian k Vaughan, fiona staples and together the two of them do all the work and i think brian k vaughn just writes and fiona staple does letters colors inks you know, pencils, I mean, she doesn't, I don't know if, if you call it pencils and inks because it's all digital, but you understand what I'm right. getting at. Like, it's all just yeah. done yeah. by two people, and that's the whole book. And so, like, when the when it comes down to splitting the profit, it's only 50-50 um, or 64. I don't know how they split it, but I assume 50-50 because that would make the most sense. Um, even though I think Fiona <laughs> Staples spends way more time on it than Brian Cain. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I, th- I think that's interesting because I mean we're talking about image, and that's you know the idea of a creator-owned property. So there's probably the and I, obviously I'm not speaking for the creators themselves, but my my understanding of the way I understand it or think about it is that if it's creator-owned, you have more ownership of it, and you're more inclined to do every step of the process. Yeah, you know I mean it's your it's your baby, so to speak. I mean that's why I know I'm only going to get maybe four issues of Love and Rockets a year. If that, and I'm fine with that because I want Jaime Hernandez to take his time, you know, and really make it perfect by the time I get it. So that sort of ownership of every creative step of the process is obviously more common among creator owned books.
0: Yeah. And that also allows for a lot more playing with the medium. Like, if you're working at the big two, you don't have a lot of um, ways to experiment. Whereas at Image, Dark Horse, or wherever you have a creator-owned book, you you can totally experiment with a lot of things. You can do crazy panel layouts. You can do funky colors. You can try weird lettering. Like I mentioned Chu earlier, and Chu has that very crazy way that they do letters sometimes where if someone is saying something in like a sarcastic icy tone, they the actual bubble has the words in like a frosted text and it's got squiggles and stuff. Like you're not going to see that a lot at the big two because they just don't like, that's playing with the medium too much. Um, and not yeah, to say that Marvel doesn't do anything that is experimental, but you're more likely to see it at a creative level. And I think that the artists get a lot of chance to play around with a lot of different things that they maybe wouldn't be able to do at, at the big two, which is always why creator owned books are great. <laughs> <laughs> but on, on
2: the same level, uh, you know, not to praise image too much because i always (laughs) feel like we got to keep that in check uh um and i I think we touched on this a little bit already um but that's not to say that at the big two you don't see sort of team synchronicity and as sort of like and, and sometimes it's just the fact that let's not deny the fact that sometimes these teams are thrown together um I, either by management or editorial at first but then mm-hmm. when they really really seem to click sometimes you'll see them stick together um, just uh, when 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 the writer bounces from one title to the next there goes the artist there goes the colorist right I mean, you, you see that a ton and sometimes when the writer switches, um, switches publishers or or goes independent you see the whole team follow yeah um when jeff lemire um went to marvel uh andrea sorrentino went right after him and started doing old man logan with him yep um and the same thing goes for their colorist um uh, marcello maolo um he went along too i believe and same thing when when lemire left for marvel uh before the other two did um i believe Mayolo. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Mayolo has always been Bernard Chang's colorist as well. And it's the same thing. Those two follow each other around like crazy. Mm-hmm. Same thing with uh, uh, Patrick Gleason and Mick Gray. Mick Gray always mm-hmm. tends to ink Patrick Gleason's artwork. Right. Um, this is JD so McKelvey,
0: you- Kieran Gillen, and Matt Wilson. Yep. Like, they all they all follow each other around when it's just like that. Declan Shelvy, Jordy Belair. Shelby is always colored by Belair. Yeah, I yeah, mean exactly pretty much at this exactly. point all of Warren Ellis's books are colored by Belair, I think.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> dark horse has dave stewart locked up in an office and he does all of that for them. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> so i mean the the whole the whole idea is that the this team mentality um while it seems much more like organic and 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 you know uh, there's more agency when it comes to independent books a lot of times those teams are created uh, either intentionally or not over at a big two book and it works and um you know, they just figure it out over there
0: and that's, that's fine too. Um, oh yeah. So there's, I mean, and this is, you know, kind of drifting away from the comic art creation process, but I think that it's, it's interesting to see how these these pairings end up working out. And, and like I, at this point there are some colorists and art inkers that I could not see working with one specific pencil or something. Like I don't think David Aha's art would ever be the same without, um, uh, oh my goodness, I, I the colorist that he always uses the guy that was on uh Epilopoulos, I think is his name. <laughs> I'm totally butchering uh, yeah, his yeah, name. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, yeah. He did he did work on Hawkeye, but he also did work on um, uh the Immortal Iron Fist. And I think that's where that team kinda got together where you got Fraction on that book as like the side writer with at Brubaker. and then the three of them, you know, Fraction Aha and I can't, the artist, there's a colorist name who I'm totally forgetting. (laughs) I feel like such a jerk. Like, they all work together on Hawkeye, and it's it's impressive because, like, I don't think anybody, like, that book would have never worked had it not been that exact group. And I was going somewhere else with it, and then I lost it along the way when I couldn't remember that colorist name. So, I'm sorry for that. (laughs) Well, in the same vein,
2: like, can you ever envision... Um, Brubaker, uh, Phillips, and anyone other than Elizabeth Brettweiser, it's no, just I mean, not Oh, not happen. at this point, yeah, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I, I guess long story short, if you want to go back and talk about how this relates to process, when you have these teams that work together a whole bunch, like w- we can sit down and talk about the conventional process being penciler, then inker, then you know, then colorist, then letterer, but when you have these teams that are Have been working together for a really long time I think you'll see that a lot of the kind of checks and balances and oversight that you find when a team first gets together, uh, they start to disappear, Uh, I know I read in an interview with Scott Snyder where he talked about how his scripting process, the way he writes scripts, how much detail he goes into, what sort of format he uses, he says like his scripting process for Coppolo is completely different than his process for Francavia which is completely different than his process for Sean Murphy, Uh, and he says you know a lot of that just has to do with how much your team has worked together right how much you either have to have things bounce back to the writer so he can look at what you've done or things get bounced back to the editor so he can continue to provide oversight and be like no yeah don't do this don't do that and so there's a lot of that sort of like
0: bounce back you see that in back matter a lot of the times i know that (laughs) in brubaker's work he'll say you know at this point he doesn't have to write anything to describe most things to to Phillips because he just says city street and the guy knows what he's like, (laughs) city side street, you know, and and he knows and then Betty Breitweiser jumps in and it's perfect every time. Like they've been working together for so long that keeping those teams together is actually more profitable because the books will get done faster because there's no need for that, like what Nick was saying, the back and forth or the Mm -hmm. uncertainty of, you know, is this artist gonna deliver what I described? And it's to the point where they don't even have to really describe that much what's happening to get the delivered outcome of what they were expecting and a lot of the times you'll hear you know writers um, talk about how like I didn't even describe it to that detail and yet they delivered something better than what I had envi- I had envisioned um, and that's that's got to be killer um, uh, just to be able to, to write something down and say you know make it look like this and then it comes back better than what you thought yeah I
1: mean that's it speaks to the larger idea of comic books as an art form and the artistic process is as much as we can sit here and talk about it and try to understand it from an outsider viewpoint it's it is mysterious in a weird way it does just come down to an in- intuition that certain people have with each other knowing what they want knowing what serves the story best and just trusting that with a creative team is it's it's magic you know totally I mean it sounds hokey but I mean I think even Graham Morrison explains it that way it's like it is magical the way that an idea goes from your mind to the page through all these steps and it comes out even better than you expected it's magic
0: thanks for listening to the I read comic books podcast this episode was produced by me Mike Rappin with editing by Xander Riggs Special thanks this week to Nick White and Paul Jasley. The music in this episode is brought to you by our favorite band in the universe, Infinity Shred. You can find Infinity Shred at infinityshred.com, as well as on Bandcamp at infinityshred.bandcamp.com. If you enjoy this show, tell someone about it. Rate us online. Write to us. Each person you tell about the show and each rating you give lends us a little more exposure to the show and helps us grow. And we just want five stars from you because we love you so very, very much. And you love us. And we just we just want to share that love through stars on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's also a great way for us to get feedback about the show we create each week for you. You can email us at ircb at destroytheside.org, and if you want to talk comics with us, find the I Read Comic Books group on Goodreads. We have a monthly book club that we feature here on the show, and we have regular threads about comics we've been reading. If you want your thoughts on the book we're reading to be read on the show, make sure you join our group and comment. You can ask us questions and comment on each episode at our subreddit, ireadcomicbooks.reddit.com. The entire podcast team is on Twitter, and you can follow the show at ircbpodcast for updates and ridiculous retweets. But a great way to experience the podcast, including our back issue bin of episodes and our weekly poll list posting, is to visit us at our website, ircb.us. Until next time, from all of us here at the show, thank you for listening. So
1: I just want to let... Should let the record show. I just cracked my my first beer of the day, so we'll see how many more I get through by the end of WrestleMania. WrestleMania is seven hours long, so. Oh God! We'll see. <laughs>
0: Wait, what?
1: WrestleMania <laughs> is seven hours long? Well, I'm including the three hour pre show, so WrestleMania is only four <laughs> oh hours. Oh my God! Okay, <laughs> all right.
0: This is like this is the Oscars plus the red carpet plus the pre red carpet show, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What time is this? Got to see it all, though. I can't skip it. Um, Pre-show starts at four. They'll do like two matches on the pre-show, and then they'll do like the main card starting at seven. So, I think there's like 14 matches all together. It's God. It's too much. It's too much wrestling, but I can't (laughs) not watch it.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because like this is this is the decide the like the who is the champion right who has like the belt.
1: It's, or I mean, it's th- all, of the, all of the belts are on the line, all the championships, you know, okay. plus all the other, basically WrestleMania is like, it's like all of the storylines that have kind of been built across the past year kind of like come to a close at WrestleMania and they'll establish new stories as well. So, WrestleMania is kind of like the, the season, it's both the season finale and the, the season premiere for the wrestling okay. story. I was going to say, because wrestling on, doesn't yeah. stop, right? They don't exactly. do like all a year. break, right? There's no seasons or anything or, or you know off season. So, holy shit, that's so much wrestling. <laughs> it's so like, much wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, on well, top man, of I like Lucha- uh, on top of like the five hours of wrestling I watched last night. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, Wait, what was that? <laughs> it was so so. Or WrestleMania is in Orlando, which means every other wrestling company in the world also has shows in Orlando the same weekend. So there was mm. like Ring of Honor had a show last night, NXT had a show last night, like every other promotion also had shows this weekend. So I watched some of those.
2: I guess the real question is, uh, how much like pay per view money have you had to shell out for any and or all of this? Well, the <laughs> or is this nice thing part about, of that season pass thingy.
1: The, well, the nice thing about WWE is that the the network is just ten dollars a month, and that includes every pay per view or every special event. So oh, nice. So you can watch WrestleMania for ten dollars, basically, and then every anything else that happens that that month. So, yeah. wow, it's nice. But anyway, Mike, you're watching Lucha Underground. I, I was gonna
0: say, yeah. I just uh, <laughs> I saw that it was on Netflix, and I was like, okay, I gotta start this. I watched like the first the first half of the first episode, so I'm probably gonna finish that today, and then I'm probably just gonna get sucked down a hole and watch the rest <laughs> of it this week because it's Kelly's really starting, good. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like you, people that I work, I mean. Not to say that your 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 recommendation a long while back when I watched that, because this is the thing. So I watched that one special you told me to buy, and I paid like four yeah. bucks or whatever for it on iTunes, and I watched most of it, and I was like, this is fucking cool. Like, this is super <laughs> yeah. soap opera-y because the opening was like, three guys like talking and yelling in, in like uh there are two guys yelling in like a dark unlit uh, uh wrestling match room and they're like yeah. i'm gonna kill you and i was like oh my god what is this this is this is fucking comic books <laughs> is interest. paul having me watch a, a snuff film <laughs> <laughs> well no i mean they're just i mean they're threatening each other it's just like it's just yeah. all trash talk um mm-hmm. and i was like okay and then somebody else at work um who's kind of been on and off in wrestling was like holy shit lucha underground is on netflix um and then like three other people who are totally not into wrestling? Like that, I work with. were like, have you been watching this? I'm like, shit. Okay, I gotta get on this bandwagon. Oh no. Uh, well, because I mean, no, if I, only because yeah. it's on Netflix. Like, I don't have an excuse yeah. anymore now, right? Yeah. Um, and Basically. it is
1: really good. It, it, I honestly, it's the most comic book show I've ever seen. More than any yeah. other comic book based show because it's over the top characters, as amazing athletic feats. All the storylines are sort of dark and deep and complex, and I mean, you've got. I mean, Mil Muertes, I don't think, shows up until the third episode or something, but he is literally Dr. Doom. Like, it's literally like a comic <laughs> book supervillain. Yes. So I, I absolutely love it.
0: Okay. I will... Uh, okay, good. I'm going to I'm gonna have to power through that, because Kelly starts Second Shift this week. Um, okay. So that means, like, my nights are f- free, and that's all I'm going to do <laughs> is just play Horizon Zero Dawn and watch Lucha Underground. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. Uh, well, that's, <laughs> it's, it's funny, because, like, Kelly, when, when we lived in Michigan, she was on Second Shift for a long time and that's how i got into like so many different tv shows and started reading so many more comic books because i just like didn't have much to do at night so i would just stay home and do that um and yeah. i feel like that's what's going to happen now and then maybe i should like force myself to work out because i was just going to become a slug that just sits on the couch <laughs> all day um but we'll see i'll probably do the first part at least which is <laughs> right. watch lucha underground so
1: <laughs> that's the most important